0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. Is bushwalking your thing? What about camping out in the bush? Would you venture off a designated trail? What would happen if you did? Kyle Perry has this and so much more in his riveting crime novel, The Bluffs. Welcome, Kyle.
2: Thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
1: Well, The Bluffs is the title, but it's also part of the bushland. Now, where have you set this book?
2: So the, the novel, The Bluffs, is set in uh, The Great Western Tears, which is a line of stark mountain bluffs that border the northern edge of the central plateau of Tasmania. So it's essentially a massive cliff, uh, line of cliffs that lead up to the highlands. And so that area itself, where the town in the book is set, uh, is a place called Western Creek, where my mum grew up. In the book, it's been fictionalised into a town called Limestone Creek, but it's actually based at a, a little town called Western Creek, right at the base of the Great Western Tears. From page
1: four, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read this. They were dense, claustrophobic and dangerous. You could walk in circles for days and never see a path right beneath you. You could freeze to death in the snowstorms that came from nowhere. You could fall off a fog-hidden cliff or into one of countless ravines and never been found. You haven't written about your own being lost in the bush episodes. This is a different story completely, but it is that (laughs) treacherous out there.
2: Yeah, it's definitely my grandfather... Because he lived, obviously, at the base of the tears, he was often called on to do search and rescue in the tears. Back then, there wasn't the technology we had, so it was quite regular. But I have been lost in the bush a number of times, and there's been an occasion that's really memorable to me where I was um, with a couple younger guys, halfway up a mountain, clear, summer sky, blue sky, warm and balmy, and then a blizzard came out of nowhere. And I remember that just really, that's, that's obviously stuck with me because we had to fight the elements to get home.
1: But that's how you've written this book, with all of those true atmospherics coming to play. These great Western tiers had a history of Europeans coming as timber getters and animal trappers and graziers. So there were tracks and huts right through the area. Yes. In your book, as you say, there's Limestone Creek and the community has generations of families that know each other, as well as Indigenous families. And what's the cultural significance of this area to the Indigenous population?
2: The mountain itself, Kuper, Kuperuni Niara, it is known as Mountain of Spirits. And it was a meeting ground uh, for, I think it was three separate mobs from across, it's kind of a pass up through the mountains. So it's significant to them. There's obviously a lot of, a lot of heritage and uh, a lot of natural treasures there. In terms of the the dark history of Tasmania, Tasmania was the location of one of the first recorded genocides in human history, and the Black War, where the um, the settlers waged actual war on the indigenous Tasmanians. There's something known as the Black Line, which was a um, where I think it, I I mean I'm I'm fogging the details now. I need to redo my research, but they it began there at the Great Western Tears, where there was a line. Um, that was spread out to try and flush out the remaining yeah. um, Indigenous folk mm. and uh, you know, ship them off. Or, it's a um, dark order.
1: history, but still there's those nin-min lights up there and the yeah. sound of the Tasmanian devils. And you write yeah. that they're, they're called devils for a reason with the noise yeah. that they make.
2: That's, yeah, they sound horrific. They terrify the life out of you.
1: And then down in the, the local communities, there's the stories about the Hungry Man.
2: So the Hungry Man legend itself was based on a few different factors that intermingled. Um, one of those is the story of Alexander Pierce, who was known as the cannibal convict. So he escaped. He was a convict and bushranger who escaped from a penal colony in Tasmania. And he walked through the Tasmanian bush and allegedly he ate his fellow Escapes to survive and there's legends that he made it to the great western tears and that he hid out in a cave there that inspired the idea of the hungry man as well as some of my own experiences up in the bush hearing things that shouldn't be there something else that inspired the story is a friend of mine telling me about a, a legend in his own hometown called The Tall Man, who lives in the bush. And the idea is that if you look behind yourself three times, then The Tall Man will take you.
1: Well, of course, all of these stories, they're great storytelling, ghost stories, etc. The stories about The Hungry Man were forbidden to be told at school. This is where the story starts. Why are a group of girls going into the Bluff region?
2: <laughs> so the girls are heading up there on a uh, school ha- camping trip. And it's just uh, because I worked in high schools when I was riding the bluffs, it's uh, pretty normal for the older years to go on a wilderness experience or a wilderness camp. And so it seemed a great place to begin, very picnic hanging rock. And of course, to the residents of Limestone Creek, the the legend of the hungry man in their eyes had already been solved because um, as you read the novel, you find out that they believe that the man responsible for the hungry man legend had already been uh, dealt with.
1: Because in 1985, there was another group of girls that disappeared. So the group of girls going up to the Bluffs, there's Eliza Alice, the Year 10 teacher, Tom North, the PE teacher, and 21-year-old Jack Michaels, the teacher's assistant. So just briefly, what happens?
2: <laughs> what happens? We can just
1: put it down to a few words, some of them <laughs> get lost. And I'm going to get get Carl Perry to read from page 72. This is Eliza, the teacher. She gets clobbered from behind. She wakes up without her shoes on, but she's asked, what happened?
2: So this is Eliza. She's speaking to Murphy, who's the father of one of the girls. Uh, It's crazy to say it now, but it was like walking into a bubble. All the noise stopped. The birds, the wind. I couldn't hear anything except my own footsteps, and they were so loud. She took a shaky breath. I got scared. I've never felt so scared in my life. It wasn't even normal. I was running. It felt like I was running for my life. She grunted, tears now running down her cheeks. It sounds so stupid. Eliza, what happened?
1: Oh, yes. Well, got to read it to find out. Now, Limestone Creek is a country town where, quote, men were still the ruling class. They were functioning members of society or drop kicks. And Murphy appears to be a dropkick. Why?
2: <laughs> Murphy, as a character, is the local cannabis dealer, or one of the local cannabis dealers, and it's a bit of a family business. He fell into that, that role, that career based on tragedy in his personal life and also inter- intergenerational trauma and, I guess, internalised normalities that we get as kids. Um, his character, Murphy, was the first character that came to me in the story because I had this experience with a client of mine when I was working at a rehab and he was a cannabis dealer. And I remember him vividly telling me how everyone tells him he's such a horrible person. The media tells him that he can't, you know, has nothing to offer. Um, people on the street, you know, look at him like he's worthless. So that's how he responds. That's how he acts that reality becomes his external reality. And so I remember that being really tragic and something I wanted to explore because I work with a lot of drug dealers. You'd be surprising how genuinely good-hearted they are deep, deep inside.
1: Well, Murphy's also Jasmine's father and Jasmine is one of the girls that gets lost. There's also Bree, Georgia, uh, Sierra, who her twin, Madison, doesn't mm. get lost. She's okay. And she's also got a very strong social following. She's, yes. she's, she's a media guru, basically. Once again, I'm going to get Kyle uh, Perry to read from page 21 this time about Madison and her social following.
2: Madison believed in all sorts of stuff. One of the reasons her YouTube channel had grown so big besides the fact that she was drop drop dead gorgeous, was that she uploaded her own ghost tours around town, as well as seances and overnight stakeouts. While Jasmine didn't believe in that stuff, there was no denying that Madison's ghost stories got her views. And what earned her the most views were videos on the Hungry Man abductions, the mystery of the five girls who disappeared in 1985 and were never found. In Limestone Creek, those disappearances were never far from anyone's mind. Madison was a genius when it came to creating consumable content. When you combine her looks with her varied content, makeup and fashion tips, social issues, hauntings and ghost tours and dark tourism, it was no surprise her channel had grown so popular. But it was the Hungry Man stories and theories that had taken her to another level. All of Tasmania, all of Australia, was still hung up on that story.
1: Yes. Before all of this happened, she had 700,000 subscribers and Mm. we sort of tempted by the paranormal, the portals, the soul traps or something called Oz Effect associated with UFO encounters. And we have learned that Limestone Creek is the third most haunted town in Australia. There's also a hanging tree there. Mm. Talk about that.
2: <laughs> in the story, the hanging tree is the location of... A number of suicides and it's taken on its own legend its own mystery and there's something very dark about the whole location when it's when you encounter it in the story it's got the funeral wreaths and a sign there with the number for lifeline if you've ever seen a King Billy pine there's something very otherworldly about them when you're out in the bush by yourself and you encounter strange trees there's re- it's really hard to describe how eerie it feels. And so that was something that The Hanging Tree achieves in this novel. It just brings that extra little edge of, of, of natural unease.
1: And Madison had found a girl hanging there and had filmed it. Of course, now that these young girls are lost in the bush, there's the media and there's the police. So senior Sergeant Detective Cornelius Badenhurst comes with Gabriella Packinger, They're first on the scene, along with so many others. And Darren Cahill is coordinating the search and he has a connection to that Mm -hmm. earlier missing girl situation. But it's the local Sergeant Dobble. He's not impressed with all these people coming in, especially Con, an arrogant out-of-towner. And Mm -hmm. when uh, Dobble's sent back to his station to write a report with big words... Double orchestrates a way to get Con off the case. And Con himself, you know, he sort of has to think about all of these teenage girls as maniacs. (laughs) (laughs) And and that Madison conniving with a Honcho Dory group and her Candela game, but you gotta read it to find out what they're (laughs) on. So we've talked about um, Murphy's drug dealing and he wasn't. He doesn't even know where he was on the morning the girls disappeared.
2: Which can be quite normal with um, drug addiction. There's lots of missing time, but there's definitely he's not sure where he was at that time. And as the story progresses, you really start to ask questions. If he doesn't know where he was, then what actually happens during that Absolutely. those um,
1: And of course, like a father, a loving father, he, he's desperate to get Jasmine back desperate to find her and I love this thing that I'm sure a lot of people in tense situations do they offer God promises I'll go to church I'll give up the cannabis yeah Yeah. and and all of this and of course you've mentioned you've hit on the mental health of some of these Mm -hmm. people especially a senior sergeant Cornelius he had this high-flying job in Sydney as a detective and here he is now in backwater like if I can say that Launceston (laughs) Well, why is it?
2: Yeah, so something that is necessary for us to discuss um, is that people on the front lines of the police are encountering traumatic situations all the time. They're not superhuman, and that does have an effect, and that does present itself in forms of stresses. And so my detective, Conn, he uh, is suffering from some stress from the trauma of his recent sydney case and so it was the decision was made that rather than staying in sydney and potentially causing more damage to his mental health he was moved to a location that had uh, a lot less people and potentially a lot less uh, intense crime
1: he wasn't the only one doing drugs at least his were medicated drugs there was (laughs) talk. PE teacher who had a juice jaw and acne on his back, very muscular and fit, but sexually overactive, in fact, horny and hungry. What was he taking? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, and all the young girls in the district knew that he was rooting like a rabbit, I think the quote was. And then there's the teacher, Eliza Alice. She was do undertaking therapy for past traumas. And she was writing herself permission notes. So what was she blaming herself for?
2: With, with the loss of the, the four new students, um, it really increased her sense of guilt because her niece had killed herself the year before. Mm. And her niece had been staying with Eliza because she also came from a trauma home. And so Eliza's attempt at, at redemption for herself and also for her niece Um, came to a very tragic end because her niece ended up killing herself on Eliza's watch.
1: And her niece was one of this group, this girl group. Carl Perry, you've used three storytellers, Eliza, Murphy and Con. Now, how did you come to this initiative to write the book through their eyes?
2: I really wanted to explore a lot of different themes and that was important to accomplish through different characters. Could have easily written it just from one of their perspectives really, but uh, I wouldn't have been able to capture the same nuance. And it's not always realistic for one point of view character to be in all those locations. I think that those three characters have very different energies. And I think that's important for a reader and important for the story. And one thing that um, a lot of readers have identified as one of their favorite parts is the relationship that grows between Connor Murphy from the start of the book to the end of the book. And I have to admit, that was a highlight to me. I didn't intend for it to happen that way. It just kind of happened organically. So that was, that was really exciting for me as well.
1: I thought it was lovely that she gave Conn, this is a detective, these insights into behaviour. Like he mirrored body language to build subconscious rapport and the disgust face he recognised. And little things like this, I thought that was fascinating. So it's crime fiction with more twists and surprises than the bush tracks through the atmospheric landscape of rugged Tasmania. Is it inhumanity or something worse that causes the death? of Teenage Females in the Bluff by Carl Perry. Fantastic, Carl. Great
0: read.
2: No, thanks so much.
1: And now it's David's turn.
0: How does a daughter help a mother who seemingly has agoraphobia? In Victoria Hannan's Kokomo, Mina returns to Australia from England after her mother unexpectedly leaves the house and Mina wants to know why. So, Victoria, welcome to 3CR.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, you provide us with a very deceptive and comic opening. Mina is about to consummate her relationship with Jack. She could hear her heart beat, a hollow ga-dunk, inside her chest like a drum. It was not her heart, she realised, but her phone vibrating, against an empty forever yellow Tupperware container in her bag. You're setting the reader up here.
3: (laughs) I don't know that I am. I don't know. I think I just I wrote that first chapter um, on my phone in the notes section of my phone while I was standing on a train platform on my way to work one day. And it made me laugh so much to kind of start the book that way that I, I had to keep it. So I don't know, I don't know if I'm setting the reader up so much as just kind of introducing them to a bit of a roller coaster ride.
0: It's almost like one expects a romance novel to eventuate from this opening, but it is actually so much more, which is quite intriguing. We have in the background Mina's relationship with Jack bubbling away, and we sort of know what's going to happen there. But the first section of this book, then, looks at Mina's relationship not only with her mother, Elaine, but with her adolescent past and the behaviour she actually hasn't left or grown out of. So there are the Changs across the road. Who are they?
3: So they are um, a family across the road. There's five of them, but we only only meet four. This family sort of grown up together. Um, So there's the mum and dad, Valerie and Arthur, and then the three kids. And they're just kind of a a bit of a whirlwind of a family because there's so many of them compared to um, Mina's family where there's only three. There's just kind of like a noisy cacophony of kind of love and kind of, I don't know, just that bustling for space and, and, and time that you get in a larger family.
0: They also become Mina's second home in many ways.
3: Yeah, they do, especially after her father passes away and her mum kind of retreats into the house. She kind of turns to Valerie in particular to be almost a stand-in mother for her. And then there's Kira, who's only a couple of months younger than her, um, who's kind of, they've grown up together and they're more like sisters than best friends.
0: Now, with this return to Melbourne, we find Mina revisiting some of those elements of her past. So, for example, she comes across Shelley, an old school friend, but ends up virtually insulting Shelley. What was I supposed to do? Stay here for the rest of my life? Marry my uni boyfriend? Have a couple of kids? Which is virtually what Shelley has done.
3: Yeah, I think... It's funny, that thing of kind of old friends that you have that you feel like you need to kind of remain friends with for your entire life, just because you kind of have that past in common. And I see it so often, I think, in particularly in people in their kind of early 30s, they've had these friendships for a long time that where maybe the two people have kind of gone down different paths, um, but they're just hanging on for dear life. Um, And I think that was a bit of a rude awakening for Mina when she comes home where she obviously has this wonderful friendship with Kira from across the road, but everything else has changed and she doesn't really recognise Shelley anymore and doesn't really recognise herself in that friendship either. And I think she's insulting because she's a little bit defensive of some of the the decisions she's made in her own life and she sort of takes that out on Shelley a little bit.
0: Then there's Ben, her past boyfriend, who seemingly managed to get over her.
3: Yeah, and quite quickly, despite his heartbreak initially. Ben was a fun character to write because I think a lot of people were hoping that he was going to end up being like a rekindled romance, but it doesn't go that way at all for them.
0: Then we have Brendan, who's one of the Changs, but this is somebody Mina has had a crush on in the past, and they do, in fact, have a sexual encounter but it doesn't actually prove to be that satisfying.
3: No, in fact, I would describe it as completely the opposite, at least for Mina. It's like you all have someone from your past where you always sort of had a bit of a crush on them and then wondered what if, and then presented with the opportunity to actually do something about it. Many years later, you'll often find that you probably never should have had a crush on them in the first place. And I feel like Brendan is such an interesting character, kind of entitlement and toxic masculinity all rolled into one Um, and he was quite fun to write to although that scene that you're talking about did make me feel quite uncomfortable.
0: Brendan has actually a very interesting line, why doesn't anyone tell you how hard it is to be an adult? So are you actually saying something here about those that are 30 or so and their ability to mature and grow up? I think not
3: for everybody. Some people seem to have things worked out pretty well. I'm not sure I'm one of them. But, yeah, I think there are different challenges for every generation. I mean, look at the state of the world now. You know, nobody saw this one coming. But I think... Yes, there are challenges for everybody, but I quite enjoyed writing the line after that where Mina tells him that actually pretty much every book and song and movie that's ever been written is actually just about how hard it is to be an adult.
0: And also then adolescence becomes quite protracted and goes into one's 30s these days. And then, of course, there's Jack in the background with Mina worrying why he hasn't called, why he hasn't returned her messages. And we sort of know what's going to happen there, but that's for Mina to work out. We then move into the next section of the book, which is told from Elaine's perspective. Now we've got to tread carefully here because I don't want to give too much away, but Elaine has a secret. When
3: I wrote the first draft of the novel, um, it was all from Mina's perspective. And it kind of hit me like a bit of a lightning bolt about halfway through the second draft that what the story really needed to kind of come alive and to be believable and to really understand the motivation and behavior of these characters was to see the story from Elaine's point of view. And so I kind of let myself sulk for a day or so when I realized that I had a lot of work to do. And then the next day I just sat down and and got started And I think that's really when the story comes alive is when we understand a bit more about Elaine. She's just been searching for love and trying to work out how, I guess, she fits among it. And I think without giving too much away, she thinks she works it out. But then I don't know that she has. I don't know that anybody has, to be honest.
0: What? is then quite interesting is we come across jeff so this is a friend of elaine's mother and jeff attends bill's funeral so bill was married to elaine and jeff comforts elaine this is a telling encounter we had a good time together your mum and i i wish she'd left with you elaine said she'd have been a better mother if she wasn't so miserable I suggested it multiple times, he said, she said she couldn't. So it would seem that there are echoes through the generations of this notion of trying to find love.
3: Yeah, I think it really just started off with Mina and Jack in my mind. And then I just kind of wanted to show how different generations have been just kind of fighting the same battle, I suppose, and also kind of socially and culturally how that impacts different women throughout these generations to how they can react to these things. I think there's a line that Elaine says where she's kind of considering what she would say to a therapist to try and explain her situation, and she makes some comment to herself like, oh, it all starts with the mother,
0: Now, can you give us a reason for the title Kokomo?
3: I can. I was at a karaoke party and a friend of mine got up to sing Kokomo by the Beach Boys. And I'm quite good at geography, but I had never really thought about where the island of Kokomo actually is. And so I looked it up and it turns out that it's not a tropical island at all. It's just a place name that the Beach Boys made up because they thought it sounded good in the song. But it is actually a small industrial town in Indiana, which has a quite low unemployment and high crime rate. Um, They have a Starbucks there that was blown over by a tornado, which you can watch happening on YouTube if you're interested. And it just really got me thinking about the kind of the way that we quite readily, just happily believe things that we're told. And actually, often if we look into them, there is a different story there altogether.
0: Well... Talking of a different story, there is a reconciliation of sorts between Elaine and Mina. Elaine actually speaks on Mina's behalf when a call comes through from Mina's boss in London.
3: Yeah, she does. We've got a sense there of kind of the old Elaine or the Elaine that kind of Mina grew up with before her father died. And I thought that was a lovely little glimpse into kind of the relationship that they used to have back when Mina was young. Um, and so it was nice for Mina also to see a little bit of the the mother that she used to know coming back.
0: Well, the book is Kokomo by Victoria Hannon. The listener and the reader are going to have to get it for themselves to find out what it was that put Elaine into the house. And she didn't come out for how many years was yeah. it? 12 years. 12 years. So the reader's going to have to get that for themselves to find out what's going on. So, Victoria, thank you very much for speaking with us today. And it's a Hashett publication. Thank you so
1: much for having me, David.
0: Well, Jen, that takes us out for another week.
1: I look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with.
0: Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, We will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week.
1: See you then. Well, let's talk then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.